0: And I'd ask you to join with me in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we lift our lives before you and submit ourselves to you out of your claim in our lives in obedience, Lord, to Jesus Christ, in both the small ways and the large ways, so that in every way, Lord, we might be giving glory to your name, might be building of your kingdom, but then, Lord, also might be learning more and more of you, that we might be comforted within and, Lord, strengthened for each and every moment and for your calling, so that we might respond to you even even greater ways in obedience to your claim in our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name, and for his sake, amen. Now, I am of the opinion, and I've got to believe, that every parent has experienced the same sort of unique thrill that comes from Traveling long distances in a car with small children. It doesn't take long before you have enjoyed just about as much of the journey as you can stand, uh, especially with the griping, the complaining that goes along. When our kids were small, um, I used a tactic that helped uh, silence their complaints. I'm sure you've heard the kids pester you with a question that goes like this. How much longer, Dad? Well, the first time that they would ask me that on the journey, I would give them out a ballpark number well, about 30 more minutes. And about 30 seconds later, they would ask the question again, How much longer, Dad? And I would automatically add five minutes, I, about 35 minutes. And they go, Ah, uh, wait. They'd ask me again, and I'd say, uh, In about 40 minutes. And it didn't take them very long to, to stop asking the question, because I know in their minds they were saying, if we keep asking the question, we're never going to get there. You know, it's just, just going to keep on stretching out. Now, now, somehow that story came to mind as I opened the Old Testament to the book of Numbers. And if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn there with me. Now, you already know the, the setting. The whole nation of Israel has been on a journey of destiny, which has been directed by God. They've left Egypt and are heading now for the Promised Land. And at first, the, the trip was is, is quite exciting. God provides his care for them in very powerful ways. But given time, they begin to grumble and, and prove to be actually the children in the back of the car on this journey to the Promised Land, whining and complaining at every turn. And their focus dissolves from from faith in God to an obsession with their own personal and petty grievances. Ultimately, the book of Numbers is, in fact, the record of their discontentment and disobedience, and the consequence? A trip that should have probably only taken 11 days ends up turning into 40 years. 40 years on hold. Now, we come to the close of our study of of life in the desert, of of life in the in betwixt and between. And, And as I invite you to open to that book in the Bible, the first chapter of the book of Numbers, we're coming to that one lesson that caps it all. Now, last week I shifted gears from dealing with episodes in the book of Exodus to dealing then with whole books, and I dealt with the whole book of Leviticus. And and this morning, I want to be dealing with the whole book of Numbers. And at the very beginning of that book, you will see how Numbers got its name. You may have a title over the first chapter that says, The Census. And that's a head count. A numbering of the peoples, and that's how we get the name of the book. Numbers. A numbering of the people. And and right at the very beginning, we read, The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after Israelites came out of Egypt. They've been out for now two years. He said, Take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name one by one. Now let me just stop there for just a second. There is a reason why they're making this census, and a particular reason why they're only counting the men. Look at verse 3. Number them by their divisions, all the men of Israel from 20 years old or more, who are able to serve in the army. We're looking for a number of good men. What is happening here is that God is mobilizing His forces because Israel is about to move him on out. And on your sermon outline, I call this the moment of truth. It may sound strange to our ears, but an order like this should have sent a spark of electricity all the way through the camp. The time has come. The time has come. Two years has passed, and now we're going home. All the momentum of the message of Exodus, let my people go. All of the momentum of the, of the message of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, make my people holy. All of the momentum that has led to this moment has finally arrived in numbers. Count them out. Line them up. God is ready and he wants to know if his people are ready too. And so from chapter 1 through chapter 10, God prepares his people to move. Now I know from the first few chapters, uh, they can make you feel like you're reading a telephone book here in the book of of Numbers. It's pretty exciting, not much of a plot. But it is all part of the basic training that is going on. The time has come and God's promises are there for the taking. And by chapter 10, they are finally ready to move out. They're all lined up. They're in their divisions. They're all trained. And In chapter 10, verse 28, this was the order of march for the Israelites as they set out. And as Moses invites his father-in-law to come along with them, uh, God's promises are really on the line. In chapter 10, verse 29, you'll find there the invitation Moses makes to his father-in-law. Come with us, and we will treat you well, for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. I want you to nail that particular line right down and burn it in the woods somewhere. The Lord has promised good things to his people. In fact, Moses repeats himself again in verse 32 of chapter 10. Come with us and we will share with you whatever good things the Lord gives us. The Lord has promised good things to his people. Have you ever sat down and made a list of the good things that God has promised you? In my library I have a book entitled The Bible Book of or The Book of Bible Lists. And under the heading of Promises to the Believer, the author has 41 items listed in line. And each of them are nailed down by a chapter and a verse. They include a new character, a new name, cleansing, comfort, deliverance, everlasting life, forgiveness, abundant life, growth, guidance, knowledge, peace, power for service, strength Spiritual Fulfillness, more and more and more and more. 41 items he has listed, each one of them just rolling over each other. But they leave you with the impression that God has in fact promised good things to his people. To you, to me, to Ebenezer. I read that list and and, and, and each one of those 41 items are true. But I also have to think to myself, that's a good place only to start. I could probably add a few more, and and so could you, I would hope. Think of what God has done in your life. Think of what God has done in your fellowship. And just imagine what God wants to build on with that good foundation. Everything that would make you mature and pure and righteous, that would shape your character in the image of Christ, I can assure you that God, in fact, has promised good things to his people. It's not hard to imagine that by the end of chapter 10, the excitement in the camp should be contagious. Israel is on the march. The promises are there, ready to be taken. And look at verse 33. They set out from the mountain of the Lord. The ark of the covenant of the Lord was before them. In verse 34, the cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out. It kind of makes you want to cheer. But then something happens. Right away in the first verse of chapter 11. Right now, it says, now, right at this precise moment, the moment of truth, now it begins, the people chose to complain about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. You see that there? In in my imagination, it is almost like the perfect Snickers commercial, a, a whiner's moment. You know, mount them up, move them out. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm not really into it today. You know, I, I, I'm just not feeling the marching thing. Hey, got a tummy ache. Uh, you know, you get a little whiny when you're hungry. Here, have a Snickers bar. Now is the time when the people choose to complain. They they, they may have thought they had already faced down their worst enemies already. The Egyptians, the desert, the Amalekites. But but, But they were nothing, those enemies. Right here in chapter 11, verse 1, they were facing down their worst enemy of all. In fact, it would prove to be the only enemy able to successfully stand between them and the promised land. It was themselves. Only they could choose to whine. Only they could choose to complain. Only they could choose to push God aside. Only they could choose to believe that, that, that what God would provide would not necessarily be up to snuff. The fact is, we really are our own worst enemies when it comes down to it. Are we not? So beginning in verse 1 in chapter 11, we find them fumbling their faith through a cycle of discontentment and disobedience until we finally arrive in chapter 14, verses 22 through 23. God finally just throws his hands up. Surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, no one who saw my glory in the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not, all, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who's ever treated me with contempt will ever see it, we read. In verse 29, in this desert, your bodies will fall. And thus begins 40 years of a prison sentence in the desert. That actually is a death sentence. For one whole generation, since only two of that generation, Caleb and Joshua, would actually make it to the promised land. Now, you biblical scholars there may think you know the reason for this verse in chapter 14. You know that God had shut the door on the people because of the events in chapter 13 where the 12 spies were sent out into the land to scout out the invasion, but when they returned, 10 of them are convinced the nation... Uh, should not go and should turn back while two of them, Joshua and Caleb, insist that the nation follow God and finish his plan of exodus. But standing there in chapter 13, on the door of the promised land, looking at the fruits of God's promise, the whole nation made a much larger decision than just how to receive a report. They had decided then that they could do better. Better. In fact, at the beginning of verse 14, they put it in words. Look at that in verse 3. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? I, I, I suspect to some degree that that drama is played out in our lives each and every day. When we know that God has in fact promised us Good things, even great things, as Moses put it there. Good things, great things, marvelous things. But there are times when we stand on the doorstep of promise and then say to ourselves, I think I can do better. You've got a spouse. And you know that it is God who makes two into one. You know that it is God who promises love and devotion and fulfillment and promises himself to be engaged in that relationship. But then you think to yourself, I can do better. You know that God promises that he can make a whole new character in your life. He can cleanse you and and give you a chance for purity, but temptation comes along, and with that temptation you find yourself saying, I can do better. Every single one of God's promises are actually a statement of his intentions. He has got maturity ahead of you and character in store. He wants you to become the man or the woman of God that he meant you to be. But on the doorstep of each and every small as well as great decision, you find yourself saying, I could do better. And that's not something that is said in one grand moment. There may be some who read God's words of judgment here in Numbers chapter 14 and think it's an isolated response to chapter 13 in that particular episode. But you're wrong. Look again at verse 22. These people disobeyed me and tested me ten times. It's kind of a Hebraic way of saying multiple times and multiple times and multiple times. Was God keeping score? No. He was just aware that, in fact, the people had been making up their mind all along the way. If they had made up, if they had said this only once, you might say, okay, I can understand. They are weak. They are afraid. But when they say it twice, you think to yourself, uh oh, something's happening. But when they say it ten times, you've got a habit. Their rebellion in chapter 13 was not a surprise. It was, in fact, the logical conclusion of choices they had been making all along the way. Ten times, a hundred times, a thousand times, who knows how many times. The people had looked at God's most simple and common promises and said in their heart, Big deal. I could do better. And so it's no surprise that when faced with the promised land, they would look into it and say the same thing. Eh, we could do better. And to that, then God says, fine. Go back to the desert. Let's see how that's working for you. And they are turned back to a place of desolation and frustration and death. And I have to think that the story plays out in our lives. and When we've made such choices, we've whined so long and we've made it a habit and then find ourselves in a place of desolation and frustration and wonder to ourselves, well, well, how did I get here? Listen carefully. You may think to yourself, "I, I will... I will commit myself to God when the time is right. When the time comes, I will answer God's call. Just get me to the promised land, God, and I will then be ready for you. My commitment will count when it really matters. But the fact is, it matters now. It matters every day of your life. It matters in the quiet places, in the small moments in the everyday matters where your decision is made, where you learn to pray, Lord, I am determined to grow in your direction, to follow you. That's how a grand decision is made. And that is where your course is set. So the question really comes out of this book, which direction are you heading? What's the trajectory of your life? built upon the decisions you make each and every moment in obedience to him. The rest of the book of Numbers, you read it and it becomes a real grim 40-year-long history of a pause, waiting to see if a new generation would rise up with a different spirit. It's 40 years of quiet moments in silent places where, in fact, a new generation is, in fact, making choices. And in the end of that book, what we find is a picture of God's grace. In chapter 26, you can turn to that, God calls for a second census to be taken. That in itself, that God would actually be willing to take another census, is an indication of God's grace. God is not finished with his people, and so a count is taken... And it's probably not a surprise that the number has, in fact, shrunk from chapter 1 by almost 2,000 in 40 years. They are fewer in number, but God remains constant with his promise. And as the rest of the book becomes a record of their strategic plan to get back on track and complete the journey, one verse stands out above all in Numbers chapter 33, verses 50 through 53. Listen to this. Numbers 33, 50, 53. Speak to the people of Israel, God says to Moses. Speak and say to them, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. You shall take possession of the land and settle it. For I have given the land to you to possess it. Now, while those verses may raise a lot of issues, I, I want to highlight just one that stands out above all. Consider the certainty of what God has to say. When, not if, but when you pass over the Jordan, you shall, not, you might, you might, but you shall take possession of the land and settle it. I have given, not, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about turning this over to you. I have given this land to you. For 40 years, I can imagine that they've been yearning to hear such words. And God, well, he's the God of second chances for them and I praise him because he's the God of second chances for you and me too. He's the one who lays out promises again and again, and all that remains is for us to take him at his word and in obedience to his claim in our lives, follow him. So let me end with just a few questions. This, This journey through the desert raises a few very important truths that we dare not miss. The first is, is in the quiet places, that's the, the place our attention needs to focus. It's in the quiet places, the small moments, the everyday matters that the course of life is set. And where your choices are made, and, and where you learn a foundation to make big choices, it's in the small places. So looking back over time, years, months, they may hold too much detail so make it a little bit more manageable look back over the last week which direction have your choices led you how many how has your relationship with god in fact changed your life just in the last week where you have been given an opportunity to make a choice in a small area but doing it knowing that trusting god means that what he wants is now what I want as well. Trusting God means that, he, that I want what he wants and he wants what I want, and we're on the same page there. There's a second application at stake. And that's behind, that is behind every promise of God is his desire to make a difference in your life and his desire to make a difference in your world. And at the very beginning of Numbers, God's people were so, so close. They were just on the edge, the outskirts of the Promised Land, in the suburbs. They could have entered it in a matter of days, but but God didn't intend his heart of promise to be held by a heart of hardness. It It was years in a desert that were needed to soften the heart of his people. And I would suspect that while any one of us might find ourselves in a desert place in life, it is not without a purpose or a point. It may seem aimless or meaningless, but but there are within those moments tests serving a purpose to soften your heart and find your direction from God. And he uses such moments to break our pride and to humble our hearts so that together we can start fresh with him anew. So the second question is a measure of spirit. How will you trust him? And let's make it manageable this week. Today. In the New Testament, the writer's looked back at this generation in Numbers as an opportunity to deliver a warning. We heard it read for us this morning from the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, and it goes right to the book of Numbers. And there we read, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Encourage one another daily, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Because we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence that we had at first. In his book, Facing Your Giants, Max Licato discovered the importance of finding healthy encouragement from others. To make a decision to continue for himself, he, he discovered that in running a half Ironman triathlon. After the 1.2 mile an hour swim, uh, mile swim and the 56 mile bike ride, he wrote, I didn't have much energy left for the 13.1 mile run. Uh, neither did the fellow jogging next to me. I made the mistake of asking him how he was doing and soon regretted that question. This stinks. This race is the dumbest decision I ever made. I hurt. I've got to blister this building here. I'm chafing. He had more complaints than a taxpayer at the end of April. My response to him was, goodbye, because I know if I listened to him too long, I would start to agree with him. But then Licato says, I caught up with a 66-year-old grandma. Her tune tune was just the opposite. She took one look at me and she said, you'll finish this. She encouraged me, you'll finish this. It's hot, she said, but at least it's not raining. (laughs) One step at a time. Don't forget to hydrate. Stay in there. Licato writes he ran next to her until his heart was lifted and his legs finally found their pace and he was back in the race again and and he thanked her and she smiled and said to him, no problem, waved at him and then took off. (laughs) And with a smile on his face, he determined to follow her with a heart set upon the same goal. So let me encourage you. In your desert, it may be hot, but at least it's dry. And it's not raining today. Let me encourage you to run that race which is set before you. Knowing that God is engaged in the race and has promises of good things for you all along the way. So let me speak of those words that come out of the book of Hebrews, out of the book of Numbers. Encourage one another daily as long as it is still called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. After all, we have come to share in Christ as we hold firmly to the end the confidence that we had at the first. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess to you that by nature, We are only too aware and out of weakness, Lord, speak of those things which which would cause us to stumble. Give us hearts of courage. Lord, encouraged by hearts that grasp the promises of your presence and of your promises. Lord, convince us to the very depth of our being that you have in fact promised good things, great things for us. And then, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, strengthen us with a resolve and a courage to take it in hand and to follow you in full. Lord, this I pray in the powerful and wonderful name of the one who gave himself for us, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.